She was this gun-toting, whiskey-drinking broad. The super epic fucking broad. She was a pioneer in the industry. She's also so famous and so controversial. So controversial. So she's kind of a big fucking deal. Her story is so incredible. She belongs on this podcast because she's a broad you should know. Hello and welcome to Broads You Should Know, the podcast about amazing and noteworthy women from history. I'm your host, Sarah Gorski, and I am here today to kick off the first broad in our new mini-series called They Were Called Crazy, about women who had to carry that moniker in their life or afterwards. And we have our broads split into a few different groups, and the group we're starting with is Crazy Prolific broads. Broads that were so incredible that they were considered crazy generally by historians and by their peers in the time period they lived. And our first broad who we're going to be covering today is Christine de Pizan, or Pisan, if you will. Christine was or is known to be the first woman to write professionally in France, and all of Europe, really, all of medieval Europe. Christine was born in Venice, Italy, in 1364. What in the world was happening around 1364? That is a really good question, because I didn't know, and I had to look it up. That was about 20 years after the bubonic plague had swept through Europe and killed a huge population of people across countries, across all, you know, all the water, across oceans. Bubonic plague was terrible all around Europe. It was also about 10 years into the Hundred Years' War, in which England was trying to take Normandy and other northern French provinces that it was felt like it was entitled to. Um, That's like the very, obviously that was a very complicated war, but that's a very simplistic overview. Um, Over in Asia, the Ming Dynasty was just beginning. uh, And uh, across to South America, the Aztec Empire was booming with Montezuma I was born some point in that century. Um, And we're also uh, back over to the Asian ish continent it was 50 years into the ottoman empire which was expanding at a pretty quick rate um taking over different territories lots of little mini wars all happening over there and that is my hot take summary of 1300 AD. <laughs> now christine was born in venice italy which was a hopping town and her dad was tommaso de benvenuto da pisano later known as thomas de pisan which translates to Thomas from Pisano. <laughs> and I know, I know people take the names very seriously back in those days, but it always kind of makes me laugh that someone's hometown is their official historical moniker. Um, and in the case of Christine, Christine de Pisano, obviously she inherits, or Christine de Pisan rather, obviously she inherits this moniker as well. And then when I laugh, I have to ask myself, why am I laughing? And the answer sadly, is despite all my personal efforts to turn the patriarchy on its head, I still find it really weird, aka I'm so deeply ingrained in the concept of surnames for identification, even though surnames are like one of the patriarchy's greatest tools of disenfranchisement. So a big sigh at myself, and we move on. Anyway, 
Uh, Christine's father and her grandfather were graduates of the University of Bologna, um, which is spelled the same as Bologna in America, but Bologna, I think is how you say it in, in Italian. And they were both uh, taught the, quote, science of medicine. And uh, one of the sources I found also noted that the University of Bologna also happened to be the oldest university in Europe, not in the whole world. I should note, longtime listeners of the podcast will remember the first university in the world was built by a broad named Fatima Alfiri in Morocco. So check out that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. It's a great one. Um, anyway, Thomas, her dad, was a doctor and astrologer and a politician in Venice. And then in 1368, when Christine is four, he's offered a post as the astrologer for Charles V in France. And he accepts and he moves his whole family there, including, of course, Christine. Now, as we know from previous broads we've covered on this podcast, women were generally speaking in this time period, not well educated. Only the wealthiest women, and even then, not all of their families cared. Um, So like women, a lot of women couldn't read, etc, etc. But Christine was a member of a family steeped with book smarts. And even though she was a woman, her dad encouraged her all the same learning habits on his daughter that he was taught and that he grew up with. And because of his high position in Charles V's court, and apparently he was also quite beloved, including by the king himself, his whole family, including Christine, was given first-class access to education in general, but specifically to the private library of the king, a.k.a. the Louvre. That is probably a familiar place to people, um, even today. So the French court at that time was also extremely highly intellectual. And Christine is there and she's listening and learning and she's absorbing all of it. And when she's 15, this is uh, at this point 1380, her daddy chooses her husband, which is how it worked back then. And he chooses a 24-year-old man named Master Etienne de Castel who was a notary. One of the sources I was reading called him a secretary. (laughs) And I find that so funny. A notary versus a secretary, how women are commonly called secretaries, but when men do the same same jobs, they're called notaries, right? Anyway, he also was a learned man. He was a graduate of the University of Paris. And this meant that he had spent like six years at least in crazy hard studies. And he was a smart potato. Um, I'm not sure if smart potato is a word other people use, or is that just my family? I have no idea. Um, but anyway, the year of their marriage, 1380, Etienne is given a court position, and things are looking good for their prospects. Their prospects is the medieval way of saying he was making pretty good money and his career was on track. But that same year, Charles V dies, and her dad loses his court position and all of the pensions, generous pensions that came with it. So his prospects, her dad's prospects, are a bit reduced at this time. Her husband still has his job, though. Um, And Christine and Etienne's marriage was, most of the sources say, a pretty happy one. They were fairly close in age. It wasn't like you know, a 30-year difference or something like that. And Etienne really encouraged Christine's brainy, intellectual, creative pursuits. 
and they end up having three children in the span of about 10 years. But then in 1386, Christine's dad dies, and apparently he leaves behind some family debts. And since Thomas had been the literal sole breadwinner when he dies, the family is like not in a great position. They're kind of screwed. And three years later, in 1389, Etienne suddenly dies and falls. He falls ill and then dies. And likely the historians weren't, aren't sure, but likely it was some leftover bubonic plague, the Black Death. Um, and his death leaves Christine a widow with three young children. And since there are no surviving male relatives in their family, she also was the sole supporter of her mother and her niece. Now, her husband did, like, was owed money by a few different people who had, like, hired him in the time, obviously, before he died. But some of the people who owed her money claimed that they had already given it to her. And one particularly terrible dude wouldn't even let her claim the land that Etienne had bought. And she tried bringing some of these issues into the court, but the legal battles were painstaking and they took forever. Um, In one of her books that she would write later called The Visions, she said, quote, God knows what torments assailed me when the bailiffs would come off to carry off some of my dear possessions. So that was some rough times for her. And in the face of this terrible situation and and no male family members being available to help, there was only one solution in this time. Get married again. To which Christine says, Mm, no, no way. And instead, she takes on the mantle of getting a job. She is learned, she knows what she's doing, and she gets her first job as a copyist. Sources say that she had kind of learned the copyist's art from watching her husband work. And for those of you who don't know what a copyist is, in this time period, the printing press has not been invented yet. It's not invented till 14. 36. So when somebody wanted literature, a copy of literature, they can't go to the bookstore and just buy a book. They have to copy an existing version of it by hand. And of course, people didn't do this themselves. They hired people. They hired copyists to go in and to write these book copies out. Um, So she gets this job And she's pretty good at it. And at this time, schools and universities and religious establishments were soliciting manuscripts constantly. So it was one of the very few job markets to open and to open to women specifically uh, during this time period. Like most, there were almost no other jobs women could get, but copyists women could do. And with her background and her book smarts, it was just like the perfect job for Christine. But she didn't stop at just copying books she quickly begins to write her own material. And at first, she starts writing love poetry and ballads, which were like the most popular types of literature at the time. And she, at first, her first couple poems draw on subject matter very close to her her heart, which is her grief over Atian's death and the genuine affection that they had in their marriage. Uh, And producing a book 
or any sort of literature, a poem at this time period, it's like a whole ordeal. Like we just said, there's not a printing press yet. So they'd have to write it out. And there were a lot of usually illustrations and drawings in the margins, all this stuff. And Christine was highly involved in the process of everything that got published by her. She paid specific mind to these minute details. And she had a lot of great skill at that. In fact, she was so good that really quickly her work starts to catch the eyes of the wealthy title courtiers, the dukes and duchesses and lords and ladies and kings and queens, all those people. Now, Christine also, in the work that she was publishing, also had kind of an unusual tone for the time period that really set her voice apart from the dudes that were her contemporaries. One of her contemporaries was like Chaucer. Um, I'm, I'm guessing at least one person listening to this podcast also had to read Canterbury Tales in English class like I did, so you probably know who Chaucer is. Um, one of her poems, uh, for as an example, describes a fictionalized version of herself being touched by the personification of fortune and changed into a male, which when we unpack just a little bit is more or less a literary depiction of her struggles to fill that male role as head of her family and take on these typically, quote, male duties. Um, and then so she's publishing these things. She's doing pretty well. And in 1402, she really starts to accrue some kind of like celebrity author status of the time period when she throws down the gauntlet now known as Querelle du Roman de la Rose, which translates to the quarrel of the romance of the rose. Uh, it was a pushback piece like a, an editorial, I guess, on a popular poem that was circulating at that time called Romance of the Rose, written by Jean de Mune. And in the poem, he paints out all women as vain, self-centered seducers whose only worth is to pump out babies. And in general, it was like the worst, horrible, misogynistic shit that was circulating at the time. It's worth mentioning, again, pretty much the only women who can read are the upper classes. Those women don't have jobs and certainly aren't literary artists of any caliber, but Christine is. So she picks up her pen and she goes to writing a defense of the women from these gross portrayals in the poem. And because Christine is wicked smart, she's using literature and rhetoric to the max at a very high scholarly level. And it draws some attention. Um, and with the publishing of Corel du Roman de la Rose, Christine literally becomes the first published feminist in Western history. Now, feminist scholars all will say, no, she wasn't a feminist. She didn't actually believe in the equality of women, which is true. She thought women had their place, for lack of a better term, but she certainly was the first, quote, medieval feminist who was writing on behalf of women, defending women, educating the masses that could read about how gross and incorrect all that misogynistic dribble was. Modern feminism, as defined as the fight for equality between the sexes, wouldn't develop widely until the late 19th, early 20th century. This is so far before that. Um, and Christine would end up writing a lot more feminist-friendly works. Even more famous than Courel du Roman de la Rose is her book, La Livre de la Cité des Dames, which translates to The Book of the City of Ladies. And it had a companion book as well, The Treasure of the City of Ladies. These books are an intricate and extensive allegory 
in defense of women. It's like an expansion of the Corral de, de Rose. And the book centers around the creation of a great metaphorical city constructed by and for heroic, virtuous women throughout history. And in the book, Christine's fictionalized self has a lengthy discussion with three women who are the personifications of great virtues, reason, rectitude, and justice. She critiques the oppression of women and the vulgar misogynistic attitudes of male writers of the day, and she includes profiles and examples drawn from the great women of history, um, the Greek Roman literature, other things that she would have read, as well as logical arguments against oppression and sexism. And the book also calls women of all stations to cultivate their skills and to live well. Um, people don't love that part of it. Christine was a really devout and well-behaved woman, so she encourages women to do the same in a lot of her works, which is also why modern feminists kind of hate her rhetoric. Um, but that was pretty common of the time period. Um, and apparently, even in the production of the book, the, the book of the City of Ladies, Christine made an example on behalf of women, and when she produced it as an illuminated manuscript, she hired only women to work on it. Now, some of you may recall from our other medieval broads like Artemisia Gentileschi that artists, including authors, writers, made their money primarily through the patronage of wealthy people. And Christine knew this from the get-go. She watched her dad in the courts and how everything all works, and she, she knew how it worked. And, and so prior to her widowhood, she knew exactly how to win over these folks and how to eke out a living. So in addition to her own writing, she's, she's writing to try to get patrons. And she gets her first patron, who is the King of France's brother, Louis, the Duke of Orléans. Um, and she signs him up as a patron in 1399. And she will later go on to add such big names as Philip, the Duke of Burgundy, Dukes Brabant and Limburg, and Mary of Berry uh, will all get added to her roster. And eventually, her popularity even crosses the ocean over to England, where the Earl of Salisbury takes a huge interest in her. And that was Kind of unusual, because generally speaking, there's a lot of animosity between the English and the French at this period. And maybe, I'm thinking, maybe Christine being Italian kind of, like, smoothed it over. Who knows? Or maybe Earl of Salisbury is just like an open-minded dude. Um, now, Christine was super gung-ho about earning patronage from Earl of Salisbury. And she sends him a number of works of hers and starts a correspondence. And she ends up even sending one of her kids, Jean, over to live with him to be a companion friend for his own son. And so things are going pretty well, and it's looking like patronage is on the horizon. But then, in October of 1399, Henry IV deposes Richard II. This is the English throne. And Richard beheads Salisbury a few months later, which doesn't bode well for Christine or her son. Her son is living there uh, in Earl of Salisbury's castle, basically. But by some crazy lucky stars, Henry takes a liking to Christine's son and her poetry. Um, so, so when he killed Salisbury, he kind of like the crown absorbed all the stuff he had, right? Including these very pretty valuable books that Christine had sent him that she had created herself. So Henry 
in fact, likes her poetry so much that at some point between 1400 and 1403, Henry IV invites Christine to come to the English court as resident poet. And this is like a totally unprecedented request and like a definite testament both to Christine's international fame and probably also Henry was really interested in cultivating a what they call a francophone culture at his court. Everyone wanted things to be French-like, even though they were fighting the French. Um, so now her son is under the king's charge. And so Christine is like, well, of course I'm going to go to court. And she kind of makes motions that that's going to happen. She sends some additional of her works to the king. And she says, you know, what would be really great is if you could send my son back to escort me to England. You know, it's it's going to be dangerous. I need my son to, to come with me. And so he does. He acquiesces. And as soon as Jean is back on French soil... In a superpower move, Christine rescinds her promise and she does not go to England. And the more I learn about Christine, the more she shines as this beacon of intelligence and level-headedness in a way that I very much aspire to be myself. Except I obviously don't know any royals, so I will never be actually like her, but I can try to, to, you know, be as ballsy as she was. And in the middle uh, of all this English debacle, she is, of course, still writing in France. She's very active in the French court. Um, It's also worth noting historically right now, things in the French royal court are kind of crazy. And literally, because Charles IV apparently had serious bouts of mental illness and fits. And the whole nine. And when he was in this kind of crazy zone and in a fit, he sometimes didn't even recognize his own wife and he couldn't rule the country. Like he just was kind of like debilitated by these mental issues. But amidst all of this, um, Christine is able to kind of navigate around the court still remarkably well. And uh, uh, many of her works were actually commissioned by and written about the French royal family. In 1402, she publishes a work dedicated to Queen Isabeau, who was Charles the the sixth wife. Um, I think I maybe said Charles the fourth. I meant Charles the sixth earlier because Charles the fag was his dad, who died at the beginning of our story. So Charles the sixth is the Mad King and his wife Queen Isabeau. Um, When I'm talking about this story in the French court, I can't even help it, but my brain immediately goes to Bridgerton, of all things, which is kind of pathetic. Anyway, uh, in 1404, Christine publishes a biography of Charles V, who was her dad's old boss, of course. Um, And her and her son being safe in France, not in England, and there not being like a ton of translation of books at this time period, Christine probably felt pretty safe to kind of write freely. And she urged French unity against the common enemy, which was the English, because they're still in the Hundred Years' War. And things were, because of the unrest at at court with Charles being kind of crazy, there was like more and more talk about a civil war and there were factions rising up. So she wrote a lot um, urging against that and trying to bring France together. In 1410, she publishes a treatise on warfare and chivalry, and she talks about the concepts of a just war and the treatment of troops and prisoners. Um, And she really adhered to kind of this contemporary at the time concept of war as divinely ordained justice. But then she at the same time was critiquing all the cruelty and crimes that were committed in wartime. Very sophisticated literature. 
And since she still continued her great relationship with the French royal family, she also publishes the Book of Peace in 1413, and that will end up being her final major work. And the manuscript is dedicated to the young Dauphin, Louis of Guyenne, Guyenne? God, I don't know that one. And it was filled with advice on how to govern well. And she continued to advocate against civil war, try to unify the French, and she advised the prince to set an example for his subjects by being wise, just, honorable, honest, and available to his people. Um, there's a lot of history that happens in this time period. I don't want to spend too much time digging into it, but eventually um, there's a big defeat at Agincourt in 1415. And at that point, Christine kind of steps away from the court uh, and she retires to a convent and she stops writing until 1429 when she writes a poem about Joan of Arc. And at that time, Joan of Arc is in her absolute heyday. She's not burned at the stake till a couple years later. And Christine's poem is the only such French language work written in Joan's lifetime. So it's kind of this like really important piece about Joan that's considered to be pretty accurate. And apparently Christine was very inspired by all that she was doing for the French people leading the French in war. And then in 1430, at, at the ripe age of 66, Christine dies at that same convent in Poissy. In her lifetime, she published 42 works. Interestingly, only five of them were translated into English before 1500, and two of those translations failed to name Christine as the author. And one of those such translations was actually ordered in 1489 by Henry VII. And it was a special English edition of Christine's book, Fate of Arms, which was to be distributed to all of his knights so that they could have the latest information on military strategy and technology and all that. Because her thoughts were considered so progressive, they were like, they became kind of this, this example for, for countries all throughout Europe. But of course... The people who published the book, Henry VII and his dudes, feared that the knights wouldn't be willing to listen to the advice of a woman about military things. So Christine's name was left off the cover of the book. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> now, generally, Christine's name wasn't mentioned a lot outside of France after her death, possibly due to the lack of translations of her work. Um, and generally not having a lot of copies of any books at that time period because only the richest people could afford them. But then... In the 20th century, Simone de Beauvoir, I never say her name right, Simone de Beauvoir brings Christine's work back into the spotlight. And she studied her as one of these earliest instances of women who wrote in defense of other women. And suddenly her name kind of came back into the lexicon and she kind of became recognized as this proto-feminist voice. Um, William Caxton, the first English user of the the movable type printing press translated and published one of Christine's work at the end of the 15th century. And he called Christine, quote, the mistress and mirror of intelligence. And other people who wrote about her compared her to Cicero and other huge, intelligent figureheads. And what a broad she was, 42, prolific writer, 42 
pieces published in her lifetime. And at a time when women didn't publish, she was the first woman to write and be published in Europe. It's insane. Why, though, did she make the list of broads they called crazy? That's a really good question. So I Googled a really, really long time looking for any article that spoke critically of Christine or questioned her sanity. I consider myself a fairly good Googler. Like I know how to type in a bunch of different words and like words that are adjacent and to be able to find what I need, I'm usually really good at it. And after three years of this podcast, I feel like I've only gotten better at it. But despite overturning a lot of rocks about Christine, including one that was um, a biofic with some kind of evil version of her as the main character, so that was funny to find. But besides that, there's nothing about her being crazy or insane. In fact, more than any other broad I've researched in this podcast, the sources that come up for Christine are all hefty scholarly documents. They're like articles published in scholarly journals and people's theses and stuff like that. And it's by far the most legit research I think I've ever collected on abroad. And yet there's nothing in any of those pieces about her being crazy. So I have no idea why my friend Rick suggested her in my incredibly scientifically accurate Facebook poll. And I, I, I think no doubt there were some haters in her time who didn't appreciate her feminism Um, her proto-feminism, her medieval feminism. But the criticisms of her did not survive in the annals of history. Only her spectacular work did. So I'm just going to call it She Wasn't Crazy. And that, my friends, is the story of Christine de Pizan. And now you know this broad. And you know that she was not, in fact, crazy. That's all for today, but you can head on over to broadsyoushouldknow.com to see some of the pictures and paintings and illustrations of Christine that have survived in history. And while you're on the website, you can click on over to the About page and you can read more about me, my bio and photo, links to my stuff is all there. And social media, are you following Broads You Should Know yet? We are on Facebook and Instagram at Broads You Should Know and Twitter at BYSK Podcast. To suggest abroad, fill out a form on our website or email us at broadsyoushouldknow at gmail.com. Broads You Should Know is produced by me, Sarah Gorski, and edited by Chloe Skye with original music by Darren Callahan. I hope you'll come back next week for the next broad in our series, They Called Them Crazy. We will be looking at another crazy, prolific broad, Hildegard von Bingen. I am so excited to dig into her with you guys. See you next week for another Broad You Should Know.